Macworld Podcast, special Macworld iWorld edition for Thursday, January 26th. Welcome to this special edition of the Macworld Podcast. I'm Chris Breen. Throughout the week, we'll be posting audio versions of some of the sessions we present at the Macworld Live stage here at Macworld iWorld. In this session, Macworld's Jason Snell, Andy Anatko, and John Gruber discuss where the new Tim Cook-led Apple will go in 2012 and beyond. Hello, everybody. I'm Jason Snell. I'm the editorial director of Macworld. And we are here for a discussion that, like six months ago when I made this up, I called the state of Apple, but I think it's good, really, to talk about Apple and where it is and and where it's going next. Joining me are two... Uh, friends and esteemed guests, in not necessarily in that order. Ooh, and feedback generators. Uh, to my immediate right is beloved technology pundit and personality Andy Anatko. Hello, Andy. Hey. Thanks for being here. Thanks for the invite. And all the way down on the right is proprietor of Daring Fireball and Rock on Tour, John Gruber. Hello. Good to, good to have you here. So one of the nice things about these kind of these kind of uh, setups is it's really some people having a conversation, which I like, and it, it it doesn't require a lot of preparation, which I also like. But we can. I, I just thought we would talk about what's going on with Apple now. When I came up with the idea for a panel called the State of Apple, I didn't realize that the State of Apple was going to be that it's sitting on a hundred billion dollars in cash. So basically, more money than most actual states have. I read somewhere that it can pay the debt service of Greece for the next two years just with its cash. And yet they don't. (laughs) Suspicious, eh? Where was Apple when Greece went bankrupt? Where was Apple? Nice nice thank you note for the democracy, by the way. You know, we've been making lots of use out of it. Looks like a couple billion dollars is not much to ask. Yeah, really. My... there was a, a story the other day that, that Tim Cook called an, an all-hands meeting earlier, or at the end of the week, in the Apple's town hall, just to sort of, you know, to tell the, everybody who works there, here's the state of the company. And, and to me, it says everything about the man that he was humble enough not to start it by appearing on a carousel behind a curtain, like on the Price is Right, <laughs> laying on a mattress of $100 bills. No, like a, a throne. Cackling, Matt. Like a gold throne with jewels. I, I heard that he actually got like one of those understage launchers, like from the Michael Jackson tour, the, the auction. Right. So there seems to be a blast of smoke, and he suddenly leaps 50 feet in the air, and then has this Catwoman stance back on the stage. Ka-tah! Right. It, it's, but it's true, though, that Apple has an unfathomable amount of cash. It's, it's people like us. I mean, we, all, of, all we really know is that it's a lot of money. But like you, it's. I don't understand what $100 billion is. I, I read that they could buy all but about 10 companies with cash. Co- 10 companies like ever that are available now on planet Earth. That's, yeah. It's just kind of with cash. No, no mortgage, no, no loans, just cold hard cash. The way I figure it, um, there's a safe in Tim Cook's office that has uh, approximately $100, $1 billion bills in it. I don't know who's on the billion. It I, may be Tim Cook. I, I vote money crib. <laughs> you know, sure. They get to wallow through it like a gopher. But th- th- doesn't it say something that they would much rather have this money in reserve rather than 
Uh, it doesn't seem as though they're taking a five-year plan of saying we will buy our way into any industry we want to buy our way into. If it's more convenient for us to simply buy off a company rather than compete with it, we'd much rather buy it off. I mean, this it's like, it's like the what was, what was that uh, uh, Fernelli Brothers movie uh, about the bowlers where uh, Bill Murray is a competitive bowler. He wins the $1 million tournament. His first reaction is, I can do anything I want. I can buy my way out of any litigation. And, I mean... I mean, we joke about the about the pile of cash, but it is an insane, yeah. almost impossible to understand amount of money. And some people really get worked up about it, and they, they say, you know, there should be dividends, and Apple should give that money back to the shareholders. And Apple, I really believe that Apple has a case of of uh, almost like a depression syndrome. Like my 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 dad grew up in the Great Depression and raised me to basically be incredibly paranoid about spending money because you never know when you're going to get your back against the wall and it's going to be hard times. And I feel like Apple's near-death experience in the late 90s has led them to this philosophy of, you know, we don't want to be beholden to anyone. We want to be able to make any decision we need to for the good of the company, and that means we're going to have a big pile of cash. So if we need to buy every IPS, iPhone and iPad display for the next 10 years today... We'll just do it. We have the cash for that, and and we'll you know if we need to do that to survive, we'll do it. And it also kind of means that they can have a strategic product that will not make money for three or four years if they feel as though they know that in four years' time they'll have all the infrastructure to make this Apple TV into something that was really really important. But they, it's good that they've got the sort of the th- first three generations of crap hardware out before the rest of the, the equation was uh, was on the market. And now they have the sort of security blanket of money that they don't have to always have blockbuster iPad-like numbers on sales. Right, they can afford to do this. And when they buy companies, people also like to play the game of who could Apple buy. And I said they could buy almost anybody at this point. But in reality, Apple doesn't buy brand-name companies that everybody knows. Apple buys... Uh, Tim Cook said this on the, on the analyst call this week. He, Apple buys talent... And they buy some some intellectual property, but they tend to do it from companies you've never heard of that they think are strategic. They're they're not the kind of company that just goes out and says, "Today I will buy a cell phone carrier," or 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 uh, today I will buy Motorola to give you an example. Right? They, they, Apple just doesn't. That's not what they spend their money on. Well, and the other thing to keep in mind, and I think the the component purchasing, you know, the five year deal to buy flash memory in two thousand six. Coincidentally, one year before the iPhone was going to come out, and they locked up five years of flash memory. Um, they really stretched that by having so few products. Like, that's, you know, you want to talk about the state of Apple. Like, one thing is financially, they are where no, no tech company has ever been where they are right now. And they're certainly not where Apple has ever been before. But, like, if you just went into an Apple store and decided to buy one of every Apple product, you wouldn't have to buy that many products, and it's not a bigger number than it was five or six years ago. Like, they haven't gotten big by making more stuff. I mean, really, the only product they've added in the last two years that's significant is the iPad, and it's, you know, black or white, 3G or not 3G. That's it. Uh, Oh, that old thing, the iPad? Well, so one thing about the Apple finances that, that strikes me is... I think we underestimate the power of the iPhone. I think we underestimate just how significant that product is. And it's hard to do, and yet we do it. That when, as a, as a publisher, when, when there's an iPhone announcement, all the, live, all the blogs crash. That's the one that crashes all the sites. That, and then if you look at the revenue, the new iPhone came out, and more than half of Apple's revenue in the last quarter came from the iPhone. That giant spike in revenue is almost entirely attributable 
to the massive sales of the iPhone. And given how strong the iPhone is apparently in China, and it wasn't even on sale in China during this quarter, um, we're going to see more of that. So it's easy to lose track because the iPad is so interesting and new compared to the iPhone. But it seems like Apple, the current state of Apple is a, is a company where the iPhone is by far the most important product that they, that they make. Do you agree? Yeah, if, if, if only because it's the one product that you can walk out of the store with for less than 200 bucks and have what is certifiably a premium Apple product. Um, I think price point is never talked about as, as strongly as it should. We can talk about how great the iPad is, but it's still a $500 doohickey. And unless you instinctively understand what this is for, someone's probably not going to be buying it. Uh, I'm going to disagree slightly. And, and the way I'm going to disagree is I think that the iPad... That's my favorite is, kind of disagreement, by the it, way, is the slight disagreement. Right. I think right now today, yes, the iPhone is the most important. But the iPad is tracking steeper. I, I'm not quite sure what adjective to use, but it's, it's accelerating steeper than the iPhone was. So it's two years ago since the iPad was announced. Right. The iPad is far bigger today than the iPhone was two years after the iPhone was announced. So it's to me, it's sort of like if they were... And, and it, it takes years for these products to truly saturate the market, you know, because it's... It, I don't know why it takes that long, because people like us, certainly the three of us, almost certainly anybody who would come to see us, are enthusiasts who, when new stuff comes out, we want it, we're aware of it. But like normal people, it just takes years for stuff to really gain the maximum traction it's going to get. So to me, it's like imagining like if the iPhone is a star athlete, and yeah, right now it's the best in the game, and it's doing phenomenal. But its younger brother, iPad, is still like in college, but is breaking the records iPhone set when it was a college athlete. Like, I think, give the iPad another three years, and it, it's going to be even bigger than the iPhone is, I think. Uh, I don't know about that. Only because we still, the iPad's been out for two years. I would almost make the statement that it's been running for two years without any competition of any kind. Uh, not just that they've beaten every other tablet manufacturer that's tried to make something like it, but nobody has put a player on the field that can play at NCAA level. Uh, so, realize in the next two years we're going to see uh, new processors that meet all the criteria that Apple would like to have of a really good mobile processor, really good graphics, really good gaming, a lot of components that can be fit onto one chip as opposed to spread over uh, more acreage. Uh, uh, Android is still kind of a crap, no, it's not, not kind of a crappy OS, tablet OS, but it's still really not there, but it's made its first leap forward. And Microsoft is now getting into tablets we still don't know if they're going to be doing a tablet version of, uh, uh, of a computer that will have Windows 7 and a real touch operating system. But if all they're doing is simply saying that if you run Windows, here is the perfect complement to it in that every single Windows app you have will have a mobile one-to-one correspondent to it. So that's why I'm thinking that in 2013, maybe that's going to be the year we finally see how iPad competes against actual comp- competition. So I'm not convinced quite yet. Although, I mean, it is fair to say that the iPhone's incredibly successful quarter just completed and the, and the success the iPhone has had in terms of sales and profits for Apple in the last year or two has come in the face of huge competition. And we know how many Android phones are out. Well, we don't know exactly how many Android phones are out there. We have some guesses about how many they shipped versus how many they sold. But there's a lot of competition in the phone space and the iPhone is still kind of on this ridiculous upward trajectory. And the iPad is... 
I think that's a question. Is the iPad sort of like the iPod was, where it didn't really have any competition, but it still took some time for it to get to get stride and, and differentiate itself enough to really start selling in huge volumes? Or is it more like the iPhone? Well, also, when you think about it, realize that unlike the iPad, when Apple sells an iPhone, they're also making money for other companies. So Verizon is part of Apple's sales force. AT&T is part of their sales force. Every local carrier that they have across the country is part of their local sales force because Apple uh, is generating monthly contracts that are worth $15, $16, $17, sometimes $2,000 over the life of the contract. So that's another thing that I think will help to uh, keep the booster rockets on the iPhone running. All right. All right. So what else can we talk about about the state of Apple? Should we talk about the Mac a little bit? Mac, Mac is still in the name of this show, although be it's the, now be the first time this year anybody has. an increasingly small percentage of the name of this trade show, but it's still there. And uh, last year was the year of Lion, uh, year of the Mac App Store. Uh, so where, you know, where does the Mac, uh, the Mac hardware, some of it is old, some of it is new. Is this the year, is this the, year the MacBook Air becomes the... You know the main system that Apple sells for for the Mac is this the oh, year I, the I think reigns supreme? It's already there. Yeah, I mean, the, the it's fact, already there. The, I mean, the the fact that Apple that Apple deleted the uh, the MacBook nothing, the white MacBook, and decided that we're going to have the cheap. Can you imagine two years ago, uh, two or three years ago, when we first saw the very first MacBook Air, that we're going to say no, this is going to be Apple's entry level Mac. Where if you want, if you walk into an Apple store with the least wanting to spend the least amount of money possible for a Mac, you would be coming out with this really cool, sexy MacBook Air. So I think it's Apple's really clearly saying that the default position for somebody who comes in and wanting to buy a Macintosh is going to be the MacBook Air. And if someone wants an iMac, maybe that will be a better fit. And some people, a few people, are, edge cases are going to be wanting a MacBook Pro. But our default Mac for everybody, I think, they're clearly saying is the MacBook Air. Yeah, it's just, it just I, I, I mean, I have the 11-inch Air, and it, it's, I've never been happier with a Mac laptop. Yeah, it's my favorite Mac ever. The eleven inch, I, I, the eleven inch Air. I have never been so heartbroken about sending an Apple loaner back <laughs> to the company. <laughs> I kept thinking about, well, actually, actually, uh, Apple, uh, you realize that uh, uh, ASOS is going to be sending me an Ultrabook next month. I'd really like to be able to do some side by side comparisons. Can I have it a seventh month? No, Andy, please send it back now. No, it's it's really remarkable when you think back a couple of years when the MacBook Air was this kind of high priced. Super slow, slowest Mac we had ever, we, you know, slowest current Mac we had tested. It was incredibly slow and expensive. And yet now, I, you know, my, I've got an i5 11-inch Air, and it is way faster than the iMac that's only a couple years old that's on my desk. It's not even close. And, and so I, I start to wonder, already two-thirds roughly of Mac sales are to laptops. And then I look at Apple's laptop line. There, there are a lot of rumors about a 15-inch Air. Um, and I, but I do start to wonder if we're going to get to the point where what we think of as the air is just going to be the MacBook, and that's what there is. And you know, it, it, that might take a year or two, and they might keep that high-end 17-inch laptop with all the ports on it. But it, it just really feels, especially with Thunderbolt in the mix, that the, the you know the air can kind of do it all. Yeah, I think that you know they've already. I mean, you can still buy the traditional MacBook Pros, um, and they still have optical drives still have real spinning hard drives, but the optical drive is clearly on its way out. I mean, if you really want a 15-inch MacBook Pro with the optical drive, I'd get one now. I would not wait because I think, I think it's going away. Uh, 
And I think it's it's just a matter of price before they stop selling Macs with hard drives. It's all going to go SSD. If, if not only for the reasons that people are just not using, not relying on them as much as they used to, but also you know what it's like in those design labs. They are furious every time they have to cut another slot in the side of this case. They are furious when they realize that this case could be this much lighter and this much thinner if we didn't have that damn optical drive. And I think there's going to be a tipping point where even if they had data that said that our customers really use these, they're going to say, nope, I'm going to invoke the Apple encyclical and say that we want to design the machine we want to design, and you're free not to buy it if you don't want to buy it. I think it offends them that hard drives are so thick. I think it offends them that they weigh is so much. And it re- I think it offends them that they physically spin because that means oh, yeah, that they yeah. can break. And, they, and it makes noise. But this, yeah, it makes noise. Yeah. I mean, everything about it. So hard drives on the way out. There is always an aesthetic part of these decisions. But this is these are the sort of decisions that I've been sort of like tracking. There, there's a huge downside still to using SSD, and that's you have to answer the question and say that I can get by with half as much storage space for the same amount of space. And Apple will tell you that, well, we have iCloud. Why would you want to do things locally? And so now we have a whole bunch of design decisions that, for lack of a better word, Apple is could be doing conceivably because the alternative is ideologically unsound. Not because this is an engineering decision or even an aesthetic one, but that we believe that ideologically large volume storage is no longer necessary and therefore this is ripe for deletion. How do you determine whether that is something that is um, pragmatic or not? I mean, USB kicking off uh, ADB and Mac serial and going to USB when there were almost no USB devices and kicking out the floppy and replacing it with a, at the time, read-only DVD or CD drive, those were crazy. And I'm not sure if those were not um, fully – I'm not sure those were entirely pragmatic decisions. I think that was Apple trying to steer a market to where it thought the market should be. Are you saying – you know, is the difference there just whether it, they're doing it because it's right or they're doing it because they want to exert more control? I, I don't think it's. I don't think it's literally wanting to exert more control. I believe that there is a certain degree to which they realize that producing the product that consumers know that they want is not a high priority. Where it's okay if someone's going to arch an eyebrow and say, "Well, where's the optical drive?" Even if they know, and and there was certainly a time when. Uh, we're approaching that time when uh, use the, people will use an optical drive maybe twice an entire year, and once of those is just going to be to rip a DVD. But there'll still be the question of not just simply that here is the logical reason why we're deleting it. The reason why we're deleting it is that here's the product we want to make, and if it inconveniences other people, we feel secure that they're going to get over it. And as for the iMac, realize that that wasn't quite so much of a roll of the dice because Apple was pretty desperate back then. It was just as important that they they designed something that's not a boring gray box back then, uh, and they realized that the people who are going to buy this machine are not going to be the people who care about uh, about magnetic spinning media. They're going to be the people who says, finally, this is exactly the sort of Mac I've always wanted to buy. And finally, people are falling in love with the color green again. I, there's a, a quote often attributed to, I don't know if it's really his, but Andy Grove, the former Intel CEO, said that in the tech industry, only the paranoid survive. And I think it's very, very true. And but it can mean you have to be you have to choose what to be paranoid about. And I think Apple is paranoid about complacency. And so I think that they approach every technological shift from the perspective of if this is where we think things are going, we would rather err on the side of going there too soon 
than getting there too late. And so I feel like that's why they generally are the company that dumps things first. They dump the floppy drive first. They, I think you could probably argue they dumped CRTs first. They kind of went LCD only pretty early. You know, they're, they're, they're the first company to make mass-produced laptops that don't have an optical drive. Uh, and I think it's, you know, it's paranoia. that they, they, see, they see that that's where it's going, and they'd rather err on the side of going there too soon, even when customers are like, I need that DVD drive. I need it. Does that, I mean, that tendency can, can backfire on them, though. I mean, an example would be Final Cut Pro 10, where I think Apple clearly sees where those kind of products should be going and feels that there, there needs to be changes. And yet, you know, the, the response isn't, when that, when that product is released, the response isn't, oh, that's interesting. I, I can see how that'll be important in the future, and this is a, an interesting first cut at it, the response is, oh my god, you've destroyed everything that you previously did, and this new thing doesn't have any of the features we want, and this is a disaster, how dare you do this? You know, but I, I understand why Apple did what it did with Final Cut Pro X. It, it's just sometimes it seems like people are more receptive to Apple being bold, and other times people are more upset that, that they feel like, well, no, 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 I just want the old thing again. And Apple's not a company that wants to give you the old thing again. Well, another example would be Lion being a Mac App Store download only. So if you wanted to upgrade from 10.5 to Lion, you know, which was the sort of thing you, you often could do. A lot of people are sort of conservative about system updates. Maybe skip a major version. Wait until, I, wait until there's a really compelling reason other than the word new to upgrade. So, but now you want to get on iCloud because MobileMe is going away. You know you have to get there within, like, what's the cutoff date? June something? Yeah, yeah June. So I better upgrade, but you've got to buy Snow Leopard. First, an upgrade to 10.6 just for the hour it takes to install it before you can get the Mac App Store to download Lion to upgrade to Lion, right? And now that's, you know, that's Rube Goldbergian. You, you know. have to get the optical disk for 10.6 and install it and then download Right, but you couldn't do it right away. You, you know, it took a while before you, before you could do that. And then also the, the procedure of, no, 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 you don't need a boot volume, a, 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 an emergency install CD. No, 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 we'll, oh, we'll make it available for $70. But we promise you this net booting feature is going to work swimmingly for everybody without knowing that, look, we're not talking about some esoteric thing. We're talking about what happens when I'm on the, on the road and something breaks, I need to boot it off of something. You're telling me that wishes and horseback riding is going to really help me through. No, please give me the boot volume. Well, to be honest, the... Part of, part of Apple's message, Apple makes money on hardware. And part of the message, I think Apple is always thinking about what their new hardware innovations are. So in, in the case of something like uh, the net booting in Lion, you know, the new systems that are Lion only have this restore system built into them, and the experience is much better. And it's clear that that's what it's designed for. And everybody else can use it, but it's going to be less convenient. And that's just... I think that's just how they design their products is they're always calculating, you know, what does this mean for the latest thing from us? Because ultimately what they're selling is computers, not, you know, or devices anyway, not software. The software is just there to enable the next generation of devices. And with Lion, I think you see that a lot. So what about, uh, what about the state of Apple in terms of the management? Let's, let's go there now. You know, where there's no formal presentation anywhere here about Apple after Steve Jobs. But I want to ask the question. I, I think we maybe all know the answer. But, you know, where is Apple now in terms of 
what it's doing, and is it really any different from the Apple of a year ago when Steve Jobs was still with us? I, I don't think so. I mean, I think that at least in the tight inner circle, they knew the score and, and they knew that it was coming to this. And I think it was, you know, about as seamless a transition from a superstar genius founder leaving the company, you know, for health reasons as could possibly have been managed. I mean, I think Tim Cook has effectively been the CEO for a lot longer than, you know, his resume says. Yeah, I mean, it's clear with all the leaves that, that Jobs' focus was on some very specific things, but Apple's playbook is still Apple's playbook, right? I mean, I, I, I haven't... I actually get frustrated when I see people say, oh, about anything, oh, this would never have happened with Steve Jobs at the helm. Because, you know, first off, in some ways, he hasn't really been at the helm for a while, and in other ways, he wrote the playbook that they use. He, he's been he, the people that he put in place for a decade are the people who are there, and they're following the playbook. And so, you know, Apple after Jobs, he's not there. It's true, but I, I don't think that it is easy to ascribe anything to. Oh well, if Steve were there, it would have been yeah. different at all. And it was, and it wasn't just that he left this playbook behind. Uh, he created a company at which somebody like Steve Jobs could one day become the CEO. I think that's really the point of it, that everybody who gets above a certain management level, whether they are trying to or not, or whether that's just simply the way that their brain is wired up, they are very Steve Jobsian in their attitude toward the work and their attitude towards how things should be built, the attitude towards what the relationship should be to the customers, and their attitude towards what a long-range strategy should be. You don't succeed in that company unless you have been... Darwinianly programmed to to uh, follow this sort of rule, which is why when you see other uh, tech companies, one CEO leaves and then you get a, you get that press release, and three days later you get the list of other people who decided to spend more time with their families or have decided to start funding personal pet startups, and you realize that it's no because their authority and their vision was only matched to this person who they were answering to specifically. Whereas at Apple, it's not as it's not as though everybody's interchangeable, but if they really do operate at a hive-style organizational chart, I think. Sometimes two CEOs leave. Right, and, and I, think, I think that the given the fact that we still haven't seen any significant changes other than Steve Jobs resigning in their management structure. It's not like after Jobs, now everybody's cashing in and Phil Schiller's you know, going to race yachts and... Uh, uh, Jonathan you know, Ive buys an island somewhere. Right. Or, and, you know, an Eddie Q, you know. Buys the music industry. Right. No, they're all still doing what they were doing. And no, nobody's been appointed, you know, vice president of dreaming right, or anything right. like that. It's still the, the exact same company. No, the only other major change is Ron Johnson leaving to do JCPenney. Right. Which, right. which rolled out their new identity the other day and it was very Apple inspired I thought I, I, it was very much the idea you can tell that, that this is this is remaking an old department store brand very much with the lessons learned from Apple's decade in retail right simplicity clarity uh, obviousness right that was the, the it was, it's kind of an interesting thing just to see these Apple like ideals applied to a very different business. You know, and JCPenney is a very different business. I mean, it really, the only similarity is, you know, retail sales, I guess. 
and but wasn't it? I thought it was a very impressive move by that individual. The idea that the Apple stores are pretty much set. They're everything that needed they needed to be built to become they are right now. And the most wonderful people on the planet are the ones who don't like a job that's done and resting and enjoying the next 12 years of just managing things. The fact that he wanted to take something that is as disastrous as mall retail and see, now let's start Let's start in a brand new workshop with brand new tools and let's have this new adventure. That impressed the hell out of me. Well, and it's not just uh, disastrous as mall retail. It's a brand name that's really down in its luck. And that, that was, I went it's... into a JCPenney. My mother gave me a JCPenney gift card <laughs> for Christmas. And, and, right. and I said, Mom, I don't even have a JCPenney near me. Uh, it, it went out of business. They closed it up. And so I went in Southern California on my way back home. I went to a JCPenney, and there were everything was on sale or double sale, and there were clearances, and it was confusing, and the merchandise was kind of randomly scattered. And I thought, okay, Ron, you got your work cut out for you. And you can see it, that the challenge is not just... Uh, not just that retail is hard and that JCPenney is in retail, but it's like, how do you redefine this brand name and make a department store that can have the same kind of shopping experience that you get in an Apple store where people gotcha. want to be there and are excited to walk around and, and, and look at stuff and buy stuff? And the added challenge is you can buy pants pretty much everywhere. Right, and JCPenney doesn't make all its products, exactly. and Apple makes most of the products it sells in its stores. I, th- I thought that the, the ad they placed was written in great language, Apple-like, in terms of it didn't seem full of, of corporate say-nothing, double-speak. It was just real clear, real simple, and then it just ended with, we want to be your favorite store. And it was like, and they, that was like the one sentence they, they bolded. Right. It's not about low, we will have the lowest prices or we right. will have the, the highest quality merchandise. It's we want to be your favorite store, right. period. Right, and I feel like that's the sort of uh, mantra that at any point as they're making changes, they could always boil things down to that and just say, okay, is this going to help make us somebody's favorite store? Yes or no? If yes, then let's go that way. Yeah, it'll be really fun to watch. I will will find a JCPenney near me, wherever that might be. And it's definitely true. Next next time you need a pair of brown pants, you'll be right. Thank you. (laughs) One of the other things I read, just I didn't know this because again I'm not I can't say I'm a frequent J.C. Penney shopper, but that uh, wait till my mom gets you a gift it was card. Seventy or seventy-five percent of every item they sold last year was at a discount off the regular price, and and so Johnson's quote at the event was, "Well, we're not fooling anybody. If seventy percent of the stuff in our store is on clearance all the time." Everybody knows that the regular prices, you know, the customer's smarter than that. They just know that the regular prices aren't the real prices. So forget about it. We're going to pick fair prices for everything. We're going to ha- we'll ma- maybe have a sale, you know, at once or twice a year for a holiday or something like that. But for the most part, we'll set a fair price and that'll be it. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to watch. This is, if, you, if you're just joining us, this is the, uh, the state of JCPenney panel. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, but I think you know a nice what? I, pair of corduroys, I think. I got, I got five shirts for fifty dollars, so the high quality. That's I, that's that's a that's a that, that, actually so that would make it like the Apple Store shirts for nerds. Like, great, <laughs> these pants fit great. Give me twenty pairs exactly like this, same size, same color, same style. You can vary the color a little. On a big roll, so in the morning I could just tear off a new set. So we 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 joke, but you know, about talking about JCPenney at the state of the Apple thing. But I do think, though, that one of the effects of Apple's 
But maybe just because of the financial success, that if you have $100 billion in the bank, if you generate $13 billion in profit, not revenue, profit in one quarter, you're going to start influencing things outside the company itself. And I think JCPenney hiring Ron Johnson to do this sort of strategy is that sort of effect. And I think if we're up here five years from now, we're going to have a lot more examples of even if it's not somebody who left Apple to do Apple-like things at another company, just other people who follow those ideals and try to uh, apply them. And, and a smaller example would be the Nest thermostat. Right, uh, right. Which was, uh, I'm forgetting his name. Tony uh, Fidel. Right. Tony right. Fidel. Thank you. Uh, but was also, the inventor of the iPod, essentially. Right. Uh, and, but with a few other former Apple people who left you know, over the last couple of years and, and did this thermostat, which is unlike any thermostat I've ever seen. Yeah, but the, it's, that could be sort of a ghost of Christmas future sort of warning for Apple because everybody respects the brand name Bang & Olufsen. They make beautiful products that no one else is making, high degree of design, high degree of engineering. When you turbo, turn a volume knob on one of their amps, it just it's a glorious thing to just be operating since it's so nice a machine. Nobody buys Bang & Olufsen, though, because for one-tenth the amount of money, you can buy audio equipment and home housewares equipment that's not as good but far better than anybody really expects or wants, and they see the rest of it as sort of frills. So that's when, when I look at devices like this, I have a friend who replaced really every thermostat in his house with these new dials, and they're wonderful and they're marvelous, but I think to myself, how much time do I spend screwing around with thermostats? Really, all I care about is make it savvy enough so that there's one box in the house that monitors temperatures in the rooms and balances out the amount of uh, electricity I'm spending, the amount of uh, heating oil that I'm using to give me what I want and save me money. After that, I don't care if it's a color screen. I don't care if it responds emotionally to my presence in the room. Uh, it's a great engineering. It's like, oh, right, it, it right but nobody no, – that's the thing about the thermostats is the, the state of thermostats – by the way, this is the state of thermostats. Yeah, now, now, we've moved from, now we've moved from home <laughs> electronics to clothing to now the housewares department yeah. of the great mall of the, technology. This is – yes, we're in the department store of technology. No, it, it, their point – I'm not sure whether Nest is the, is the alpha and the omega of thermostats, <laughs> but uh, one of the things that Tony Fidel said when they launched it was – Nobody had touched this category. Like, they, they went from the one, like, when I moved into my house in 1999, it had a mercury thermostat on it. And I went, I said, oh, oh my God, it's mercury in there. Everybody be careful, put it in a bag, take it to the hazardous waste dump, and go get a new thermostat at Home Depot. Well, that thermostat broke about 10, 12 years later, and we replaced it with another one. It's exactly the same. Nothing other than going digital, these things haven't changed. They don't work very well. They're really inefficient. So I'm not sure whether Nest will be the be-all, end-all, but I think if Nest is successful, what you're saying will come to pass that we'll see other things like it, and they will have changed the industry, whether they become the Bang & Olufsen of that industry or they become the mainstream leader in that industry. And that's one possibility, but something that occurs to me looking at your wrist and looking at my wrist we're both huge nerds, but we have the simplest analog watches ever. And the fact that uh, digital watch features increased to a certain point that sort of stopped the 1988, I think well before phones displaced them as the cool computer that you're wearing on your, on your wrist, I had the exact same situation that you did with your thermostat where I had, a, I had a Millennium Falcon wristwatch that I loved and I wore for three years. As a matter of fact, I did buy three copies of it because I liked it so much. And as I broke each one, I'd move on to the next and then four years later, I was finally out of Millennium Falcon wristwatches. Falcon Gamma. 
passed exactly. away. Exactly. Uh, and so I thought, okay, well, great. This is going to be awesome because it's 1990. I haven't even looked at digital watches. I bet they're going to be fantastic. And all they changed was, okay, instead of storing 50 phone numbers, now they store 60 phone numbers, and there are three alphanumeric lines. Sometimes it comes to, and I, I wouldn't purport to know exactly what the market forces were on this product category, but you get to the point where people are exhausted by more features and more ideas. They're clearly telling, telling the manufacturers, we want the time. We want a little light so we can watch and see it in the, in, the, in, the, in the evening time. If we really want to be flashy, tell us what the date is. We appreciate the fact that you can do text messaging on it, but really all we really want to know is know what time it is. Right, but so, the brilliance of, of something like the Nest, which is this smart thermostat, if you haven't seen it, uh, it's really cool. You know, my thermostat has settings for different times at different temperatures and different days of the week. But, you know, and my parents does. And, I, you know, lots of people have them. And they, most people don't use them. And I, if Nest does its job right, all you'll ever do is set the, the temperature. And it'll figure everything else for you. And you'll look at your heating and cooling bill and it'll be cheaper. And if that, if that succeeds, that's great. But if I could step back from the thermostat for a moment. Um, Let's go into kitchen appliances a- Apple. Now. Apple, um, the Apple waffle maker, the no, the Android microwave. I've got a big idea for a microwave that's powered by Android that I'll share later when we're not streaming on the internet because somebody will steal my idea. So, um, Apple for years was this weird company that everybody said said no, no, they're too strange. They're not like it. Anybody else? The stuff they do, nobody else can do. You, as a business executive, just ignore what they do. You can't learn lessons from them. And I feel like in the last two or three years, Apple has turned the corner where. Nobody can really – okay, there's some pundits online who can say it. But most business people now look at Apple and say, wow, that is a success story. What can we do to be more like them? In a way that even when Apple was successful over the last decade, they didn't do. And now I feel like suddenly everybody – there are just no more good arguments about, about Apple. Lots of companies, whether they're JCPenney – or a startup like Nest, are saying, why can't we do what Apple does? Why can't our executives be more like the Apple executives? Why can't we change industries and have different priorities? What do you think it is? In the la- is it just that Apple's become so successful that, that there's just, you'd look stupid if you said that they, could, they, they couldn't be replicated? I think it's largely because you can't just simply say, you, you can't simply visit a, 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 the campus of a successful and iconoclastic company, come back to your own company and say, you know what? We're not having any cubicle walls anymore. Every, no office chairs. We're having beanbag chairs, and all meetings are going to be 10 minutes long because this wasn't the, – the character and the personality of a successful management system didn't happen because someone came home from a conference and put in plans. This was organically how the culture grew. This is a culture that attracted certain people that like to work that way and feel as though their own efforts are being supported by being allowed to do things the way they want to do things. There are so many people that they want four cubicle walls. You know, they want to actually be not three; they want four. They actually don't want to have to see or hear anybody else in the entire office. So when you do, when you try to copy Apple, it's like trying to copy an oak tree. You have to plant the seed and watch it grow, and then see what it came up with. You can't then just watch what it, what it became. Go to Home Depot, buy a whole bunch of lumber, paint, and fake leaves, and build something. Because what you build is going to be half-assed and not an oak tree in any way, shape, or form. But do you not think that there, there's been a shift where people look at Apple and say, Apple was successful by focusing on the, the product in a way that we didn't. We were focused on something else. We were focused on our, on our distributors. We were focused on uh, the cost of shipping. And we should have been focused on the product. Uh, do you think 
there are things that that are are other businesses really being influenced by Apple now, or are we still at the same place where Apple is just you know no, it's Apple, nobody can be like no, Apple. I, th- Forget I it. think we are seeing that. I do, but I do. Th- I think it's going to take a long time. It takes you know it's in effect. Apple strategically is playing like a game of chess where they only make a move every five or six months when they ship a new hardware product, right? So they made a move when they shipped the iPhone 4S uh, back in October. And their next move, presumably, you know, best guess, probably a new iPad in the next couple of months. Uh, And you really only see the game in hindsight looking at it year over year over year. Uh, And so you can look at the iPod. I mean, that's something we haven't even spoken about. Used to be, you know, a couple years ago, it was, you know, the, the... Macworld Expo was filled with iPod stuff, right? And now, you know, they sort of, it was a product that, that went up and then it peaked. And now it's, you know, they still sell, they sold 15 million of them. Uh, they say most of them are iPod touches. So you can kind of chalk that one up in the iPhone category. It's iPod in name only. But there's, either way, though, they still sold six, seven million iPods last quarter. That's, that's a heck of a business. But they're sort of gracefully letting it fade out. And then you look at the product's history. It was year over year, a new batch every year, uh, make them smaller, make them hold more songs, make them a little cheaper, get the price down, get them down to $199. But what they definitely didn't do was get to a point where like, okay, this is a hit, freeze it, and let's just keep selling this until people buy it. Like every year they kept it moving. And I, I think, I do think other companies are catching on to that, that it's better to sort of take this fewer products and evolve them over time strategy than what I think is the more traditional way, which is let's just put 30 things out on the market right now and put them all next to each other and see which one people buy. Well, it's, that's, that's absolutely true. One one thing that we have to keep in mind, though, is that Apple is the... I can't think of another company of its size that has what you could be termed as power steering. They can make a slightest move, and that gets enacted immediately because they control their entire market. Uh, and this is not going to be a diatribe about, oh, well, they, they lock people into certain modes and they don't have competition. That That's not it at all. It's that they have, they have strategies that work very well for them because they... If there's if there's one thing you could steal, it's the idea that the best long range strategy is to compete against the next version of your own product because that's the only way you can ever control your own destiny 100. percent So as a, an example, I I think I think Amazon keenly studied the the way Apple handled the iPod product line and is following it in a way with their Kindle, uh, where. They didn't wait until they had a perfect Kindle. They shipped one, and the first one was not that great. But they had a plan, and they never really expanded to, like, a gazillion Kindle models. You know, they'd maybe go to two or three, maybe up to four. Uh, Once a year, new ones come out, prices go lower, and every single year they sell more and more of them. Uh, But I think it was always a very deliberate, we're in this for the long haul, it's the number of Kindles we sold in the first year was irrelevant. All that matters was that somebody was buying them and that there's a path to sell more going forward. 
I'm sure there are people sick of me talking about this, but it's something I, I literally believe to be true that the most one of the most wonderful force multipliers a company, especially a tech company, can have is a crazy billionaire CEO. That we don't we you know I will never tire of explaining that. Keep in mind that Jeff Bezos is building his own commercial space fleet, and I'm and. If you look, if you look for uh, uh, look for uh, the website for Blue Origin, which is a space venture, he does not do flashy demos of rollouts of here's the the, the latest lifting body of the engine. Once every two years, you might find a very bad like 19, 19, 2002 grade video of here's a test fire of our latest engine. Didn't really work well, but. Our goal is that we feel as though if we keep getting better and better year after year, in 10 years we will have something. And because – they don't say this, but because our billionaire CEO believes this is a good project to do and he has enough resources to keep putting money into it until it works, that is an unstoppable company. And that is exactly what you're seeing with the Kindle. The first one looked like it was a Cylon design, 1977, not even 2005. How long did it take to flip a page? It was like two or yeah. three seconds, right? Well, not, and it not, had that weird silver thing that you had a little wheel yeah. that you slid it not, up. Not only was, that, but it was, it, was impossible, oh. it was impossible to pick it up without turning a page because it had these, like, these pinball paddles on the side of it. But you realize that he was willing to take a bath on each unit for years until he developed this market. That's admirable. And if you don't like it, he will ship you to their new um, their new warehouse on the moon. So, on the moon. <laughs> but I'm a Prime member, so it's free two-day shipping free to the to moon. The f- two days to the moon. It's three, true. $3.99 more for one day ship. You get there one day. That's right. They get the fast rocket for the moon. What, we're talking about the competition. I, I think the Kindle Fire is an, an interesting product. I feel about it sort of like I felt about the original Kindle, which is that it's a nice try, but it's really not all there yet, and they, there's more work they need to do. But they, they wanted to get it out, and they felt some pressure from Apple and from Barnes & Noble to, to get that product out. But in... You know, there's a lot of interesting competition, and you can see Apple's impact, I think, more than on anybody else, on its direct competition. You can see with Amazon, Amazon's the only other company that has the, all those customers with all those credit cards, and it's got the media infrastructure that Apple has. And that's why I think the Kindle Fire is the most interesting tablet competitor. You look at Microsoft, which has always seemed to be one of the most un-Apple, you know, it is definitively the most un-Apple-like company out there. And yet when you look at Windows Phone 7 and what they've done with that, that, that is a way more innovative product than Android is. They, they went completely the other way with it to make something that's different but still really innovative. And then there's Android, which with Ice Cream Sandwich and with the new style guide that they announced at CES, they seem to be Realizing uh, Google seems to be int- realizing that interface consistency uh, is important and polish is important, and all of those all of those companies seem to me to be taking a page out, out of Apple's book. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, you're using, you, you've used Windows uh, uh, Seven and uh, Phone Seven and yeah, uh, and, uh, and Ice Cream, ice cream sandwich. sandwich. Yeah, I have both, and they're both uh, you know adjectives that you would have never thought you'd applied to Microsoft's mobile operating system or Google's mobile operating system, you know, graceful, um, elegant, smooth. I mean, all of those adjectives absolutely apply. I mean, they're very, very well done in ways that you just like, you know, go back in time five years and, and, you know, you'd be like, get out of here. No. Microsoft? Really? And you're like, oh, my God, it's like really nice. It's all like typography. It looks, you know. Looks like movie credits as you flip through these screens. It's you know, it's really great. And you'd be like, Microsoft? Really? I, I, I keep saying I don't know who they either fired or hired three years ago, 
But, man, somebody put the right additive into the water supply in the Microsoft campus when they came up with Metro. I, I, I have Windows 7, 5. A couple different, I have a couple different phones like that. I also have a Windows 8 tablet, which I spend more and more time on this Windows 8 tablet because it is so nicely done. In many ways, it's that unfamiliar and slightly squicky feeling of, I kind of wish my iPad worked not entirely like this, but I can see at least two or three things that I really wish Apple would do. When you spend like a couple of days, when I, when I try to review things, oftentimes I really do have to eat the dog food and spend three days with this phone as my only phone. And I'll go back to the iPhone and I keep, I keep instinctively on the Windows, uh, on the iPhone trying to make it do something that I got used to the Windows phone doing because it's so much simpler to just get this piece of information off a Windows phone. It's so much easier to drill down into an app in this consistent way with Windows phone. Uh, and I can't imagine what will happen when as I was saying earlier, when you give a consumer choice between having a, let's say, a $599 Windows 8 tablet that your Microsoft Word will not run exactly the same way on it, but it will be the same copy of Microsoft Word. You just will not have the multi-windowed mode on it. And I think that Microsoft is maybe the best example of Apple's ideals spreading throughout the industry. I mean, it's no argument in my mind that Microsoft hasn't humbly taken a step back and said, there's some stuff we can learn from Apple in terms of paying attention to design and not being afraid to sort of go back to the blank slate and start over. Like, in some ways, Apple beating them so soundly on the phone space, they had no alternative, but to, uh, there was right. no longer anything to protect, right? right. <laughs> but, but, in, you know, but I think Windows, I think what they're doing with Windows 8, though, is the best example, though, for PCs, because with the Metro interface applying to the PC... They really are not just adding a new layer on top of what was there before. They really are starting over and in a very brave way. And Microsoft, to me, as an institution, has always sort of had the, a very, very conservative mindset about changing something that worked. So at some point, they started selling a gazillion copies of Office with an interface that was primarily based on toolbars at the top of the window with a bunch of little inscrutable icons. People have 24-inch monitors. Why are we not putting more buttons in this? Right. More buttons. Right? And they sold a ton of that. And it worked. And then they just rode that out. And they just stuck with it. And people praised the ribbon when they switched in whenever year it was to the ribbon interface of Office. And, And I would say it was an improvement, but it was still fundamentally putting a bunch of things to click on in toolbars at the top of the window. It was just a better way to do what they were already doing. Whereas now we're seeing them really just go back and say, what big picture, what can we do if we just start over? In a way that Apple, I think, has always not been afraid to do. I think that one of the signature things that Microsoft has been copying is the idea that we have to behave as though we're one company and not eight different companies that happen to share the same source of funding. The idea, because Windows Phone earlier versions were horrific because it was a operating system that was designed from the kernel level for tiny little handheld devices, and yet it has to have a start menu. Well, why does it have to do that? Well, because Windows has a start menu, it's part of our brand. Like, no, perhaps we can give you ideas on how Windows should operate, and perhaps, you know, we, we have to have one consistent portfolio of, of products or else we're giving people absolutely zero incentive to 
think favorably about Microsoft for their next software or hardware purchase. I feel like Microsoft is still a little conflicted about this because they do have this big market to protect with Windows. So when, when they first showed Windows 8 at the D conference in May of last year, they sort of showed it, and it was all this Metro style, which is really nice and consistent and very different from other kind of inter- interfaces. It's actually innovative. And then they very quickly fell all over themselves to say, oh, oh, but underneath you can still have a Windows desktop with all the old apps, right? And and for me, whether Windows 8 succeeds or fails is going to mean a lot about when – can Microsoft stand up and say, you know what, guys? I know you're loyal customers and you've run it the way it was all this time, but things are changed now and and you need to adapt. Or whether they're going to say, oh, you can turn it all off. Don't worry. It's it's just for for crazy people. It's for people on tablets. It's for people who are sick. Uh, You can just use the same old Windows you, you remember. And if they do that, I'll be disappointed. I was actually really disappointed in that presentation, not because it was Microsoft, but because I felt like they had something great, and then they were very quickly like backing away, like, but, but no, it's you don't actually have to use our our good thing. You can go back to the way it was and not change. Yeah, and their problem is, what's the last stat that the most popular installation of Windows is still XP worldwide? Now, of course, the piracy has something to do with that, but you really, at some point, you can't do you consensus will no longer work. You have to give leadership, like you know, just like well, when, maybe. when Cortez reached the new world, he set fire to his ships. This left his men very well motivated. Well, if you're Microsoft and you realize that your customers who don't want to change are just not going to change and they're not right. going to update, right? Does, that might actually be freeing. And they're like, all right, well, Windows 7 is still gonna, there. We're never going to sell this guy XP Windows 7. still there. Right. Vista is still there. Whatever. This thing's new. And upgrade if you want to. Instead of – that would be really refreshing of them to do that because so often they've been playing defense and saying, how do we make it so that we can continue to sell upgrades of Windows and Office? Instead of saying, let's make a great new product people are going to want to update to. So uh, this is the state of Microsoft and thermostats and JCPenney and shopping malls and Apple. Uh, and we've reached the end of our time. So I want to thank my guests, John Gruber and Andy Anatko. Uh, and thanks to everybody for being here. And thanks to everybody watching on the Internet stream. Uh, and thanks to Skosh for sponsoring Macworld Live today. I'm Jason Snell from Macworld. We'll see you next time. Thanks a lot. Thanks.